Today, Londoners have woken up to a very different city. Over half of America is on lockdown. As many of us must stay at home as possible. Hello, you're listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times from the University of Oxford's Said Business School. I'm Peter Tufano, and in this podcast, we want to share our insights and research from the front lines of business around the world. This series is based on a program of live online events that Oxford Said has been hosting since the COVID-19 lockdown, which aims to encourage and promote new thinking when we need it the most. In each episode, we bring together a panel of experts to discuss the impact of the pandemic across a variety of business sectors and reveal how to find a path to the opportunities of the future. So, in this episode, let us entertain you. Episode 2, Entertainment 2020, Blockbusters or Silence on Set? The entertainment industry is one of the biggest markets in the world. In 2019, the theatrical and home entertainment market alone surpassed over $100 billion for the first time in history. But of course, the pandemic changed all of that. On the one hand, cinemas and music venues stood idle for months, and some still do. And from Hollywood to Bollywood, movie sets shut down. But on the other hand, the lockdown has seen a global streaming glut. It's been a boom time for big players such as Netflix and Apple TV, and also for proliferation of new platforms such as Quibi and NBC Peacock. Around the world, TV viewing figures are up by 25%. But with the slowdown in production, by late 2020, will there be anything left to watch? And what will be the lasting impact of the lockdown on the cinema and music industries, which have been perhaps hardest hit by the COVID-19 shutdown? In this episode, we're asking if the entertainment industry can weather the COVID-19 storm. On our panel are three insiders who can give us the lowdown. Kathy Payne is the CEO of leading independent global distributor Bonajay Rights. David Hancock is director at global technology research media company Omdia, and Jens Muir is an acclaimed and award-winning film producer. The discussion is led by Dr. Alex Connick, fellow in management practice here at Said Business School and a media industry veteran. Thanks to everyone for joining. Um, we're going to take a really sort of fast and furious look at the world of entertainment after lockdown today. When will we get to see the new Bond movie with the slightly unfortunate title No Time to Die? Um, when will we get to see the hotly anticipated Tom Cruise in the new Top Gun? Um, what about new TV shows? What about new shows on Netflix? And how, how are TV and film producers powering up again? Is Amazon going to buy a cinema chain? Quite a lot of people think they are. Uh, who's winning in the streaming wars with all the new players like Disney and Apple? These are big questions. And we have a great, great panel to uh, answer those questions. Kathy Payne is a big player in the field of international TV rights. She's CEO of a company called Banerjee Rights, which actually includes some of the world's biggest titles like the US reality smash hit Survivor, which has been going for about 20 years. Um, uh, the hit drama Versailles, reality formats like Temptation Island, Wife Swap, The Restaurant, a comedy The Inbetweeners, which I'm sure many people have seen, and many, many else besides. So, Kathy, you sell TV content for a living. Is there a market for TV in the same way there's a stock market or a market for art or cattle or what have you? Uh, thanks, Alex. Yes, the market for television content is huge and very mature. I, for my sins, have worked in selling television content my whole career. So we, I work for a company 
which produces content all over the world in a multitude of uh, uh, languages. And that content sells to all different platforms globally, whether it be linear broadcasters or the SVOD platforms or uh, what was home entertainment. And now the other platform, I know we will talk a lot about uh, SVOD subscription, Avon platforms as well. And then if you, had, if you had a magic button that you could press today and you could get a new series of a particular type of show, what kind of show would you like to have? What, what, what's the market desperately crying out for at the moment? Well, the market, there's been a little bit of a change. When COVID first started, there was a bit of a demand for uh, documentaries or programming around COVID as we've moved into it and, and people have turned to looking for something more fun, a bit more lighthearted. I'd love a broad audience relationship comedy. Thanks so much. Okay, next guest, David Hancock, who's a global industry analyst, director of film and cinema at the Market Information Omdia. David's got great perspective over the changing language of film distribution. And every time I talk to David, I say what I think is something true. And he says, actually, no, the opposite of that's really the truth. And the, the, the received wisdom is wrong. So David, let me start with you. Um, with all this streaming that we're seeing, does that mean cinema's dead? It's a question I'm asked quite a lot, actually, Alex. Um, I've done this for 23 years, and it's probably the most common question asked of me. So back in 2019, uh, cinema around the world was worth about $17.5 billion. Last year in the world, it was worth $42 billion. Um, if we look at the markets that we track, 62 countries around the world, two-thirds of them are growing pretty healthily. So the answer to that question sort of depends where you are. If you're in Germany, which had a very poor couple of years, then you sort of have a perception that cinema may be dying it has actually gone down in the past few years. If you're in Indonesia or China, then you have a perception that cinema is a very modern medium and it's actually part of the modern uh, media landscape and leisure landscape as well. 2005, China had uh, 1,000 screens. Um, broadly, there were sort of um, quite small screens or propaganda type screens, you know, weren't really cinemas as such. Um, so the past 13, 14 years, it's grown to 70, actually more than 70,000 now. Uh, it surpassed the United States on November the 16th, 2016 actually. Uh, it was a day I love, which, uh, I love that kind of analyst fact. Yeah, that's one of my good facts. So my answer really is, is no, it's not. There are mature markets around the world. And obviously mature markets have different specificities, characteristics to growing markets. But overall, cinema is not a dying medium. No. What do you think is going to be the biggest hit of the last part of this year, the biggest cinema hit? Well, it sort of depends on how people open up. Um, what's, what's happening is you're seeing cinemas allowing, being allowed to open but um, they are subject to measures, capacity measures or um, social distancing measures. So quite a few are, have to operate at 25% capacity or 30% capacity, which uh, may well limit actually yeah, what sort of uh, gross box office they can take. So if you're a film at the beginning and you're the, the, the stricter measures and as, they, as countries open up a little bit more, they may ease and you can sort of get more people in. But I think that most people are looking forward to the No Time to Die bond, um, 12th of November, but there are, you know, there are films being lined up. I mean, there, there's been a four or five months gap hiatus in film distribution and film production as well, actually, as you know. But there are you know, 69 films going to be released this year by the studios compared to about 129 last year. So about, about half. Um, but they've all reworked their schedules. So what they were going to show between March and July, uh, they're putting out later, later, later. So there's a sort of two-year reworking of their studio slates. So okay. there's quite a few films being lined up anyway. Thank you very much. Okay, my third guest is Jens Mura, who's a, a multi-award winning film producer, um, director Egerly Tossel Films in Berlin, but he's actually produced all over the world and all over Europe and in lots of different languages too. 
He's made um, single take drama Russian Ark, the Dutch language international hit Black Book, the TV miniseries Carlos the Jackal, Big Game, Filth, the Oscar winning Rush, many, many projects. Jens, how many films have you actually produced? Well, it's my partner, Judy and I, I think um, we're, we're kind of around 80 and counting, hopefully. <laughs> and which, 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 one are you, which one were you producing just as we went into lockdown? What hit me the hardest is actually a film that had just started its release cycle and had come to a standstill and we don't really know what will happen to it. It's a film called An Impossible Project. Um, we were in the midst of filming one film called 27 Stories and a few other ones had been lined up. It's possible to make smaller films or more local films, but the second you need somebody to get onto a plane from Los Angeles to complete the cast uh, and the, probably somebody, what we call an essential element, an actor that you need to have in the film to really finance it, you're dependent on somebody feeling comfortable enough and secure enough to do this. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, some are already, some aren't. It's still a little bit unpredictable. Okay, well, look, so the plan for today is to talk about three big topics that everyone at home knows about already, um, because, because we're all big customers of this stuff, and we all have views. We're gonna talk about the streaming wars, talk about cinemas and film production, and we're going to talk about TV production and big news shows. So let's start with the streaming wars. So during lockdown, everyone's been watching a lot more content in general. And, you know, that's actually true of conventional TV. So Shark Tank, the big ABC hit in America, has 25% more viewers than it had. Then the UK and Ipsos Mori survey found out that 63% of Britons are watching more TV. We've also seen lots of new entrants into the streaming wars. So we've seen um, Apple TV+, Plus, HBO Max, BritBox, um, Disney+. Plus. Quibi doing short form, and they probably can't all be winners. So David, give us a perspective on that. Do you think that this kind of glut of streamers that have come on is gonna play out with some winners and some losers, or do you think there's gonna be space in the market for all of them? I'm a cinema analyst, not a TV analyst, but fortunately my colleagues at Omnia have plenty of expertise in TV, and they gave me a little briefing on this, so I can, I can probably say what uh, they would have said to you. Um, but yeah, streaming, yes, there are lots of services coming out, but there's probably space for, um, yeah, it's quite a few, uh, large, big streaming players, but actually what you're seeing now really is a sort of a niche and smaller streaming services which will come underneath that. Um, actually, the, the, the biggest losers in all this are probably pay TV, um, because people are cutting the cord between pay TV and they're going for basic TV services and then going for streaming services on top. Um, but if you look at the actual streamers themselves, you know, during this time, um, Disney Plus, it's a good time to launch, frankly, for them. There's people at home, kids at home not being at school. Um, they've done very well in their launch. Amazon have done very well. Um, Netflix have done pretty well as well over this time period. The smaller ones, so some have had to be delayed. Uh, the French service Salto, for example, um, couldn't launch, didn't have the content to do it. Production was stopped, so it didn't have the, 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 the content they needed to actually make the launch. Um, sports, um, Dayzone, for example, is a sports um, streaming service which had, had to stop. And live sports uh, in most countries don't exist anymore. So I would say that... Um, yeah, the, the larger ones have the challenge that they need to have new content. So new content drives new subscribers. And mm -hmm. if you're in production lockdown and you can't make new content, then over the next sort of six to 10 months, your subscribers will be at risk of disappearing, They're either churn or, or fewer new subscribers. You also have the situation where people are at home probably exploring their Netflix and streaming services quite in depth. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. they're, going to the, they're going around them and saying, well, what have we got here that I haven't seen before? And they're going to come to a point where they actually exhaust all the stuff they want to see. Mm. And that's probably when the smaller services, maybe the, the Queebies you talked about, and maybe the uh, Peacock, for example, you know, those sorts of things which will come into the market and with more niche or maybe a smaller um, demographic uh, target market, they might then get their chance to shine as the, other, the, the larger ones uh, exhaust the content. 
So Kathy, as a, as a supplier of that content, do the streamers have an insatiable demand? Are they ringing you up every week going, what have you got? Is, is that how it's working at the moment? There's been some specific demands around particular slots that are coming up, but most of the new shows that they're launching are, are, were scheduled to launch in these last months. So they've long been in the in the can. I think their, their appetite for programming is... Uh, quite similar. I think it's interesting to look at services such as uh, uh, the Peacock and the HBO Max looking to lead with some acquired product and Mm. some non-American product. I think Disney is a different proposition for most uh, Mm. most subscribers. Is it kind of a closed garden, Disney? Because it's kind of Marvel and Star Wars and Disney. Disney are very active in looking at commissioning programs, but pretty much on the Disney model, what they commission, they want to own fully and control down all their pipelines. Tell us a little bit about that. So I think people might not know this. So what's the downside of selling a program to a Netflix, say? what's the, From your perspective, what's the downside? You know what, with Netflix, there's a, a number of different deals. You've got the originals where they will commission, pay the budget, want global rights for their, their service. We've done, a, over the past, we've done originals with them. Who retains all the off-platform rights to exploit is really a question of leverage. Yeah. If you have another okay. buyer, you take it somewhere else. We also do a lot of co-productions where we'll have a linear broadcaster as our primary, and they'll take, and then Netflix or will come on and take second window in the domestic market, rest of the world, and then there's acquisitions which they will acquire for a number of markets, and it can be more selective. They do acquire certain programs might be more specific need for a specific region. Oh, but okay. I think you're talking about, as Netflix have grown, they've, uh, the originals is where they want to really control all the rights. Mm. But, you know, mm. it all comes down to leverage. And also if you're bringing in a co-production and you've already got a partner, you're more likely to retain some rights. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk to Jens. So Jens, you, you know, Netflix buy shows and buy films, and they've made some good films, haven't they? They made The Two Popes with Anthony Hopkins. They made Dolomite with Eddie Murphy. As a producer, do you like it when you get a call from Netflix? Is that a good call to get? We like getting a call from anyone who's uh, <laughs> got a yeah. purse in their pocket. But the, the, the honest truth is, is that even though, like, for example, we were behind Carlos, which was a big success as one of the, you know, sort of first standout limited series that could have been on a Netflix Um but we are really very much still driven by theatrical distribution, by choice. And um, although one's always scrambling to put together a project and finance it, and you know, therefore Netflix plus the other platforms that can pay for this, of course you, you want to talk to them. And yes, we are talking about developing a series, a Berlin-based series uh, with one of them. Um, but our starting point in a strange way hasn't changed in that, and this is a really terrible time to be looking at this, is, is that <laughs> we dream of seeing our films on the cinema screen, which is mm. to a large degree incompatible with Netflix. And as you all know around the films that are having award runs and so on, that's a tricky territory. Another question for you, which is that, that a lot of your content's been in French, English, German, Dutch, Russian, I think you mentioned Georgian, Hebrew, you've done a lot of content in different languages and actually, Credit to them, Netflix have done quite a lot of big international shows this year, haven't they? So they did Money Heist in Spanish, was a big hit, certainly in our house it was. Um, they did an Indian remake of Criminal Justice, I think. 
the UK show. So do you think that the streamers are bringing a more multinational, um, more sort of a content, sort of a range of content that's actually more reflective than a kind of American hegemony as we might have seen, say, a decade ago in, in filmmaking? Yeah, I think they are for sure. And that's actually a really interesting development. Mm. What I also think is interesting about it is that they're leaving the public broadcasters or the broadcasters in various countries and we heard pay tv i think they're leaving them all way behind them by by taking this more global storytelling approach and you know they'll be doing something spanish mainly directed at, at their spanish subscribers but if it's really good mm. i'll watch it in germany as well and i think that can only be good for filmmaking moving from streaming services to the cinema and a multinational tech giant that could potentially be bridging the two there's been talk of amazon buying the big American cinema chain AMC, which owns the Odeon Cinemas here in the UK. Why might an internet retailer want to move into the world of the big screen? David Hancock? It's actually been talked for a few years now. So both Netflix and Amazon um, were linked to the sale of Landmark, Landmark Cinemas in the States. Um, they both, I think, declined and it was bought by someone else at the time. I mean, obviously, cinema stocks, I'm not a financial analyst, but uh, cinema stocks have gone down in price. So if you're looking to buy a cinema circuit and AMC is the biggest one in the world, um, then it's probably quite a good time to buy it. AMC themselves have talked about how, you know, how they're struggling during this crisis. And Amazon, why they would buy it is because they'd want a platform for their films and cinemas. At the moment, cinemas refuse to take films that streamers want to release at the same time on their streaming platforms. So that those films will be boycotted and not be allowed to, to, to go into cinemas. If you can't go into cinemas, you can't get awards, for example. If you can't go into cinemas, it's, it's, cinemas are almost like a stamp of quality like a kite mark, you know, it's sort of saying it's a cinema film. If you remember the old expression straight to DVD, instead of a perceived um, sort of straight to TV type the, um, image of a TV film. And Netflix and Amazon are both doing some great stuff and good films as well, but they're not cinema films. And the reason why they might buy one um, is to get that sort of you know, bypass the exhibition boycott and put them in their own cinemas. So, they, you know, Amazon may well... What's the view in the cinema industry? Are people afraid of the notion that Amazon might buy a cinema chain or, or do they find that intriguing and, and full of possibility? Well, uh, Amazon actually are, uh, have been much more flexible about theatrical releases than, than Netflix. So Netflix have this sort of rule, you know, it's, we've got to do day and date and that's why they have so many arguments, especially with people like Cannes uh, in the French market, which has a very strict theatrical re release window system. Um, but Amazon actually, Amazon have a, Amazon Studios, which make picture films. And they go into cinemas first and they then go into Amazon platform three months afterwards, after the window. So I think that actually there is, there's, there's less spin than there would be if it was Netflix, um, because they feel that Amazon actually is sort of on their side. Um, Kathy, you've been involved in lots of um, big fiction production. You know, big, big, what, kind, what kind of productions have you been involved with and have you ever thought about them actually going not to TV but to cinema or, or to both? Or can you mix the two up? Well, I think most of our production, scripted production, is series and returning series. So they're, they're for a, a, a linear or non-linear environment rather than theatrical uh, as such. Uh, we've had one or two uh, documentaries that have then had a limited theatrical release based on, on, on how they turned out, really, rather than that was uh, planned. And we've had a few theatricals that have spun off some big brands we've, we've worked from. In Between mm. Us is an example of mm. uh, two theatrical movies that spun off what was a television series. They were very big money makers, weren't they, the two In Between Us movies? Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, they, they were at the time. 
Christian Vienz from Jack in Glasgow, he says, is co-financing in the movie industry going to be a way for ordinary investors to buy into riskier projects? So tell us a little bit about that, because I think it comes up quite a lot, the idea of crowdfunding movies or everyday people getting going into movies as investment. Is that a good idea? Is that going to work? Is that something you've ever done? Yes, definitely have done it on an impossible project, uh, which is a feature documentary, theatrical documentary, shot on 35 millimeter. So it's about the comeback of analog in our digital age. Um, we did a crowdfunding campaign trying to raise 35,000 um, dollars uh, or euros as part of the finance plan from 350 backers to be able to shoot the film on 35 millimeters. It's not a really good way to raise any large amount of money. It's a really good way of interacting with your audience. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think co-financing crowdfunding is just too much work and too labor intensive for really producing a bigger feature film. Yeah. The other question I was going to ask you is we've obviously seen a lot of state intervention into our economies over the last three months, an unprecedented kind of Second World War amount. Um, of course, in your industry, especially in Germany, state interventions um, an everyday event, isn't it? You know, how does that work for you? How, what's it like making movies with state funding? And is it something you've come to be too dependent on? Well, that's a long, big subject. Actually, it's pretty similar um, in various forms in every European country and many others as well. I mean, there, there's federal state schemes for film financing in just about every uh, American US state. Um, Canada has a big, big public funding system for telefilm and local ones. And yes, we are all too dependent on it. It's not very well run at all. It's a very bureaucratic system, but we couldn't really function without it. And, uh, and it has a very logical function from the taxpayer's point of view as well, because it attracts production activity to certain regions. And for example, if you take the European Union, we've just heard about the 70,000 screens in China. I mean, if you're the European Union, you really want to make sure there's some image of what you are out there in the world. And we're, mm. frankly, we're really struggling with creating that image. And mm. uh, that is just a necessary and good investment from the state's point of view in, in supporting this. How they do it, the bureaucracy around it, it's, it's totally uh, life energy sucking. Got a question from uh, Humphrey here. How are producers thinking about adjusting the production process? So we mentioned briefly the idea of social distancing. So how are you going to adjust the process? But first, Jens, and then Kathy, I'll ask the same question. How are you making this stuff to, to, in this last part of the year? How are you going to do that? Well, I think the, the truth is twofold. First of all, it's, it's beginning quite small and people have even been making films using Google Hangouts and so on. I don't think that's the future of cinema. <laughs> and uh, the rest is that we're hoping that'll go back to normal with um, overcoming lockdowns and so on. So if you look at Germany, that's pretty feasible because we managed to contain things. Um, if I were in Britain, I'd be more worried. Um, okay. And yes, of course, the people are doing things like they rent a studio and a villa next to it and everyone goes into quarantine before they start filming. So they know everyone's well when they do start filming. Yeah. But yeah. you want to do that with Hollywood stars and the salaries they get per day? Not so sure. And how about you? How about you, Kathy? Turning to TV. So, how are your production companies making all all the shows that you need? Are they going back into production now? Uh, well, because we're an international company, where we've got COVID at different stages around the world, so you'll have some markets, such as Sweden, where production really hasn't stopped. Uh, you'll have markets like Australia, and New Zealand, where it's starting up again 
and protocols are out there. A lot of studio shows kept going even in France and Italy, but there were many different protocols in place. It, it depends, as Yen said, can you isolate a group of people? The hardest one to return is, is no doubt drama scripted. Mm. And we're seeing soaps and BBC and publishing the UK uh, protocols. Really, the, the big two questions that everyone's facing is when you can get back in and how you can get back in. And we scripted the huge costs that have been incurred of a scripted series with high-profile talent that stopped. When can you get everyone back together? When are you sure you've got another 10 weeks? And how are we going to fund this interruption cost and what's happening with insurance going forward? Just, just, so, in, case people, just in case people don't know, what would be a typical per hour budget for a big fiction series like a Narcos or The Crown or whatever, or Succession? Well, roughly, what would you be spend, people be spending per hour or that kind of thing? Well, I'd say for, for the, if you're talking, because, you know, once you get into titles like Succession, you've got a lot uh, cast and, and so forth. But if I just talk about the UK, our big, what I would call our bigger series, they're, you know, we're looking at funding shows at 3.54 million pounds an episode. Right. And yeah, even a super domestic show now is one and a half million pounds per episode. So you've got six of those, it's significant budgets. Mm, Obviously, yeah. You have, you know, we, we don't go, we're not in Game of Thrones territory uh, yet. And Games of, Game of Thrones didn't start off on the budget that it had in the last seasons when it, it first started. But, you know, you've got high-profile scripted series. Uh, they're expensive. I'm David. I'm from Shelley in America. Are we going to see the comeback of drive-in movie theatres? <laughs> I, mean, I was just asked that about an hour ago <laughs> um, by a journalist. So... Um, They've been in decline uh, around the world, actually, and in the USA especially. They've uh, halved in number in the past 10 years or so. And obviously, this is their moment, you know, to, to, to do something. Um, they've actually been shut, I mean, most countries and in America as well. And they've been opening up in the past few weeks. So they haven't really had a chance to, um, to come back and to be popular until um, the past couple of weeks. Um, we've seen a few temporary ones pop up, um, mobile ones, um, but they're actually quite expensive to do. If you, you need a site, you need um, a, a big screen, and you need a projector. Um, you also probably can't get access to latest movies because you probably won't get um, the, the right standard of equipment that you're allowed to show latest releases on. So you're going to be hamstrung by content as well. So unfortunately, my answer is probably no, you probably won't. But they right. do have a chance to make an impact again. And apparently, if they can make an impact and show that they've moved on from what it used to be. Uh, for example, sound systems now, they, they give you a code and you put it into your, your own stereo. So the sound systems don't have to be built around your car. They just sort of come oh, through okay. your car stereo yeah. system. So there yeah. are things that have been done to make it sort of more interesting and maybe if you've got a great car with a great stereo, you might quite enjoy that. Um, Another good question for you from Natasha. I don't know where she is. Do you think there'll be further impact on cinematic releases due to social distancing, i.e. will films have longer runs so everyone can watch? That's quite an interesting point, isn't it? The actual sort of condition uh, of films could change. It is. So in the USA, well, in the UK, most countries are around about the same. Big countries, France, Germany, about the same. They release about 700, 800 films a year in cinemas. Obviously, that's going to be massively down this year. Um, so when films do come out in cinemas, you're going to see fewer in number. You're then going to see the capacity measures in place as well. So that reduces the number of people. But if you have a cinema with 10 screens, if you can show the same film on 10 screens and you can show it for longer because there's fewer films coming out which demand your immediate attention, 
then you actually have a chance for those films to, to make up what they would have made in the first place. So mm. I would think actually that um, one of the strategies that exhibitors will deploy is having the same film on more screens and having it on for longer runs, yes. Just, just help us on the economics. So let's say I've made the Bond movie uh, and, then, and then there's a global lockdown, so I can't release it in the cinema. Why, why do I not just sell that Bond movie to Netflix? I think some people might want to know the answer to that. Because they won't give you one point one. They won't give you one point one billion dollars for it. That's why. Um, yeah. So yeah, they, that's what that's what they'll make in cinemas probably. Now they won't make the cinema won't take all of that, and the distributor won't take all of that. Let's say half and half. Um, mm. But you don't get um, you don't get the same value creation releasing something straight into a TV uh, or a home entertainment system. Okay, let's, let's just change register a little bit. Jens, let's actually talk about something creative because of course the wonderful thing about this business is it is actually a creative business. I've got a couple of really good questions here from um, people online. First one's from Ayodeji in Nigeria. Are filmmakers seeking new frontiers or markets? Are filmmakers considering leveraging the vast filming population in Africa due to its population? What's your feeling about that, Jens? Because the Hollywood and cinema in general haven't done a spectacularly good job, really, of reflecting the diversity of Africa, have they? Do you think that's going to change? Oh, there's two different questions. Do I think it's going to change? Uh, I definitely think it should change. And, you know, coming from a kind of um, small cinema nation myself, because how many people ever see German language films? You know, <laughs> the much bigger markets that are under being underrepresented in, in Africa. We're constantly up against the English language sort of onslaught of this particular culture, you know, and all the movie stars are either British or American, et cetera, et cetera. And that's true in Africa, it's true in China, it's true in Russia, it's true here. And mm -hmm. so in a way that's what you're constantly pushing against. And I think it's definitely possible. And, you know, there, there is a long tradition of African cinema every now and again breaking out. I think probably not a lot less than say German or Finnish cinema, um, uh, you know, do I see a rosy future for, um, you know, African language or German language films conquering the world? Probably not, uh, but there is a future and it is something we should be, and we constantly are working on because, you know, every now and again, where do you find something really different? Especially mm. if you're like us independent producers and we're not doing mm. Avengers movies, not in the budget range, but also not intellectually. So you, you got to find that special story, that pearl. That, mm. um, that does get everyone's uh, attention. Kathy, do you still have to view the, rel the potential success of a piece of content investment through the prism of what will America think of this? Or are you able to make much more uh, global decisions and much more non-English language decisions now? I think it all depends on not all, our, not all the product we invest in that I'm requiring that it works in America. Definitely the streaming services open the doors for people to see a lot of non-English television. Yeah, that's and a good thing, isn't it? It's a great thing because yeah. there's great creatives all over the world, you know, and there was mm. this funny terminology we used to call a non-English, because I always say non-English, a foreign film. Mm. What's foreign about it? It's just made yeah. in another language. And I, I don't like that, that terminology. But mm. I remember even we think American streaming opened up doors for a lot of English language that wasn't American English language programming as well. If mm. I went back even eight years ago, there was only about three or four buyers for a British do domestic drama in America. Now you have, you know, 12 I remember yeah. they used to think British television was too dark, often the stories, 
uh, they spoke in accents that was hard to understand mm. and a lot of the people weren't always attractive enough to be <laughs> in television. Then you have a TV series like Happy Valley and I think that ticks maybe those, those boxes in, in, well, in some degree. dark show set in the Yorkshire Dales, isn't it? It's not a, yeah. not a happy American show, that's for sure, is it? So looking forward, how will the entertainment industry be affected by the COVID-19 pandemic in the long term? How long will the shadow be cast by the virus? Jens Muir? The impact is massive. It has come to a standstill, like many other industries. One thing, you know, for us as independent producers, it's not that unusual that a film gets pushed or delayed or something because of actor availability and so on. So that's something that we do have to deal with in healthy years as well. So I think the big impact question will be answered kind of next year, who's left standing? To imagine all cinemas in the future will be multiplexes showing one Avenger film in 10 on 10 different screens because of social distancing mm. leaves me horrified. I mean, that's not why I'm a filmmaker. Mm. Um, but if that's all that is left standing, the multiplex that uh, follows that strategy, you know, will be wiped out. I don't believe that's going to happen because I think after all the screening that we've done, you know, we're dying for the communal experience of going to see a film together and, and mm. you know, being in a room where you don't turn on your phone, you're just, you've got good sound, a good screen for quality independent film. And, and, you, go, and you go for a drink with your friends afterwards and talk. So I think, you know, it probably can't be a bad thing that the number of films on uh, theatrical release is being reduced so we can focus on the ones that are left more and enjoy them more and also therefore exploit them more. So something good might come of it, but lots of people won't make it through next year. And what about the actual workers in all of this? You know, what about the people who work on your sets and the people who write scripts? We've got a question from a scriptwriter, JJ, you know, asking, you know, should scriptwriters be worried? You know, how are you... How are you managing your sort of distributed workforce of freelancers? How are they coping? Well, like in many other industries, it's difficult. I think as a screenwriter, um, you might be in a really good position. I mean, what have we been doing? We've been developing like hell um, because we have the time, because nothing else we can do. We wish there were more investment into developing projects because we know there is going to be, there's going to be a a kind of a wave of demand for product as we can go back into production but there's already been an increase in, in in demand for product anyway because more platforms to see different kind of projects in and that's not going to go away either way um so uh if i were a screenwriter i wouldn't worry too much i just tied <laughs> over um, you know if i if i were like me a, a director who should be on set um this is a difficult period but it's not the first time and hence for me it's more like who will I be working for this time next year is it a, is it just theatrical or is it all going to be streamers is public television ever going to make a comeback are they still there are they thinking about actually producing something that anyone might be interested in so that's more my question but it's, you know, okay. it's not the first crisis so so same question to you, Kathy. So when, when we look back on this year as a as a financial hit or whatever, where do you think it will where do you think it will rank in, in your business? Oh well, no doubt it's a significant blow to all large major production companies because you've got productions that are delayed. So mm. you have to sort out with your broadcasters how you're going to fund not only the interruption costs, what's going to be uh, when they can come back. 
Uh, so no, no doubt results will be down. I think as a bigger business, because we we have a global footprint, we can we have the ability to ride it out probably a little bit more. For smaller companies, they need help. Uh, you probably know that there's a lot of work going on in the UK about looking through PAT, which is an industry body here, talking about the, the tax incentives, what can be done with those to increase those to help the COVID delays. It's tough if you're a freelancer. Uh, and if you were, if you didn't if you weren't on a job so you weren't even furloughed you know it's a it's a a, a difficult time but like uh, uh, Yen said we've been developing 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 because there will be gaps and people will need to order order shows I also think we've had this bit of a quandary in television of everything got very expensive all television dramas. I, a show to work and be successful does not have to be the most expensive show. And we've had, there's been a BBC drama launch during COVID, Normal People, mm. a smaller drama, and I think it's it's done very well. It's just very well made. And that, and that wasn't too big a budget? No, not, yeah. it, it's, it's not budgets. It's, it's a manageable one. And I think, you know, we just need to explore, explore mm. ways. Okay, fine. So, to David, fine. You can you can wrap things up. So, again, the same exact question to you. When we come to look back on twenty twenty, where you know where will this stand in the history of the the movie distribution and uh, and exhibition business? Well, there'll be a big drop in my graphs, that's for sure. And <laughs> showing the box office, um, the cinema business is going to lose you know probably half of its business this year, maybe a little bit more. It could lose over a two year period. It could lose about thirty thirty five billion dollars, of which about seventeen would go back to cinema, seventeen billion dollars. So cinemas were in the process of, re of investing. They're in the process of smartening up, investing in digital technologies and new experiential technologies, new seats, uh, new sound systems, you know, building new cinemas. Uh, cinemas around the world, frankly, were, were growing and smartening themselves up. Um, that's got to be put on hold. and That money won't be there to invest. And I think that we're going to see a, sort of a, a, a reimagining of the cinema, but in a cheaper form. Um, and that's going to have a, probably an impact on what we see as cinema. But for me, you know, as Jens said, and I, I, I've said it to you many times, you know, cinema is the, the bedrock of movies, of films, and it's the yeah. best place to see this film. So I think you'll still have cinemas and they just have, they'll have to cope with you know, the impact of this. But there still will be cinemas because we need them. My thanks to Dr. Alex Connick, Kathy Payne, Jens Muir, and David Hancock. My name is Peter Tufano, and you've been listening to Leadership in Extraordinary Times, a podcast from Oxford University's Said Business School. Rate Review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to find out more about the Leadership in Extraordinary Time series, please visit OxfordAnswers.org.